It was the middle of the first century. And this man, John, an apostle, recorded the life of his saviour, Jesus. The same Jesus, having ascended, then revealed to John in a vision things which must surely come to pass. And this became the book of the Revelation. And John also penned these letters. Principally, the letters were against heresy, a particular type of heresy of the day. Tertullian used 1 John in his arguments against the opponents of the gospel. But we've seen also that these letters are also full of warmth. John in particular places great emphasis on loving the brothers and sisters in the church. So far then, in the, where we're up to, John has presented to us Jesus Christ in different roles. And he's, he showed Christ as a human, as divine. He showed him as our helper. He's presented him to us as our sacrifice and also our Lord and Master. We've looked together at different types of sin that lie within us and how Satan gladly employs those to try and get us to fall and bring discredit on the name of God. And we also examined what Antichrist meant and defined And then last week, we came to a difficult passage about sin, which we've just read. If you're a believer, you cannot sin. And we proposed that the best interpretation would be to recognise that there is a new creature, a new creature that is united to Jesus. And insofar as it's united to Jesus, it is sinless. And yet, the Apostle Paul showed us that he said that while he is a new creature and sinners, still, in this life, in this present life, within his body were relics of the old man. And this causes his behaviour to be affected so that instead of sinning, instead of behaving sinlessly, the unrighteousness which still dwelt in him Affected, adversely affected his behaviour. And this results in sin. And this is why we sin in our behaviour. So I put it to you, this almost a paradox, you know, that we are both considered to be sinless and completely sinful at the same time. But we have an advocate. And when we sin, John tells us, we can go to him and receive forgiveness. We ended last week in verse 10. And verse 10 ended with the person who doesn't do righteously doesn't belong to God. And that includes the person that does not love his brother in Christ. And today in in verse 12, the example of Cain from the book of Genesis is used. And it says Cain was of that wicked one. He belonged to Satan. And I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 4, just what happened. Genesis 4, and the first few verses, says, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. 
And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thou countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. So the question is, well, why? Well, why would he kill his brother? It says, it tells us here in the, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, it tells us, it says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. And so, why kill Abel? Because Cain's works were evil, and Abel's were righteous. Now, I imagine Cain had thousands of opportunities to kill his brother throughout their lives thus far. Had he a, a personal vendetta against his brother because of the way he walked or the way he chewed or something and he just hated them and wanted them to death? Why ha hasn't he done it so far? It is because of this particular incident. Something happened to him. And what happened was the righteousness of Abel was highlighted and the unrighteousness of Cain was exposed. So we can see then that really Cain hated righteousness itself more than the person of, of Abel. He hated righteousness. And so it is that Cain can be considered as a type of this world. It says in verse 13 that the world hates us. Marvel not, John says, my brethren. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. They absolutely hate us. It says, uh, John says, or reports Jesus has seen in John 15 and verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you, it says. They hate us, sir. And here's the strange thing. There's no need for you to do anything to the people in this world. It's not required that you do anything to them, do anything bad to them, that will cause them to hate you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to speak to them. You don't even have to know them. You understand that it's your very existence that they don't like. It is your very existence in this world. I remember meeting someone for the first time who heard that I was a Christian. And this, this, this girl came with, with someone else and visited my, my home. And she began to uh, rant and rave about Christians, the church, God, all this. I mean, it was quite venomous as well. And, and I thought, well, where did that come from? She doesn't know me. 
So what is it she's railing against? She's railing against God, really. People just hate God. That's the truth. They, they hate God. Jesus says again in John's account in chapter 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but me hateth because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. It's really God they hate. The thing is, they really want to kill God. That's what it comes down to. The world wants to kill God for the most part. And if there was some way that God could come to this planet, they would kill him. Well, hang on, that, that actually happened, didn't it? Uh, God did come to this planet in the form of Jesus Christ. And they killed him. It may have been by the ordination of God, but man was responsible for the crime of killing the Prince of Life. So they killed him. And now he's resurrected and gone back to glory. And so the world has no target anymore. How, how, can they, how can they attack God? How can they kill God? They can't. You, my friends, are the next best thing. You, the representatives of God in this world, are the next best thing. And so you'll do, as far as the world's concerned. All over the world, the most persecuted people today in this world are believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't go around killing people. They don't go around doing evil and thieving and stealing and committing adultery. No, they are killed because of the world's hatred for God and his righteousness. You see then, I want to impress on you that your very existence is a constant reminder to the people of this world that there exist some higher moral standards out there that they know that they don't meet. Your very existence in this world is a daily torment against these people. And I don't care whether they're your friends or your family. They would just, they would like you to fall. You see, you are just a thorn in their side. Just, just you having this righteousness. I, uh, I spend a lot of time, as you know, in, in the country. And, and so I go on these farms and we see all these green fields with all these lovely white sheep running around. And sometimes we go in the winter. And in the winter, sometimes it snows. And the snow comes down and covers the fields. And then you notice something strange. All these white sheep don't look very white anymore. They, they look off-white. In fact, they look dirty. We can think of those sheep like the, the people in, in this world. And so all they want, really, the world, is for that whiteness, that pureness, that righteousness to disappear. Your very spiritual life exposes their spiritual death. Let's not forget also Satan. Satan also hates God. And he also hates the very holiness of God. And again, he can't harm God, but he can go after you, the next best thing. And so he hates us. He, he hates us. And, and here's, the, 
here's the sort of shocking, really, irony of it all, is that the, the, the better you behave, by which I mean the more Christ-like you become, the more good you become, the more Satan hates you. So, naturally speaking, you would think that people who go around wanting to do good things and loving other people, including their enemies, which is what the church is. Naturally speaking, the world and, and everything else, like Satan, they should all love us. They should all think, these people are great. We want them in positions of power. Why is it that they take, if you like, the best people in the world and don't put them in positions of authority, but try to kill them? Hatred of God. And every time you take a step forward in a Godward direction in your Christian life, Satan will be onto it. He will know about it. He knows all about New Road. He, he will have seen that there is maybe some optimism here that, that wasn't here maybe a couple of years ago. And people are thinking differently now, maybe rejuvenated, and Satan will not like that. He will already be aware of it, and it would not surprise him if he has already drawn up plans for each of you and for me to try and bring this down, to try and cause division. And so you may find that in the months or years to come that you will have thoughts which you think are your own thoughts but are likely to be from Satan who wants you just just these small things just uh, just occurs to you that person hasn't been as kind to you as they should have been. As a Christian, they should have shown more thoughtfulness. So you become dissatisfied. Or you might even say, this guy in the pulpit is just his, his way of speaking, the way he dresses, the way he talks, the way he holds his hands up in the air. I don't like it. And so dis dissatisfaction comes in. Dissatisfaction turns to business, which can turn to hatred. And so you can see, brothers and sisters, how we have to be on guard all the time. He will not leave us alone. He won't. Okay? He's not a bogey man who jumps out the cupboard. He is someone who tries to make you sin. And he will try to make you dislike the brethren. Watch out for it. In verse 14, there's a, there's a litmus test here for a litmus test for the believer. We know that we pass from death to life. How? Because we love the brethren. Seems a bit simplistic, doesn't it? That's what it says. Now you might think, well, I, I love everyone. I actually, there's no one I hate. Well, great. But it's easy to say that. If you are the subject of some opposition from within the church, let's say someone you know who's a believer, and you suffer because of them. They could malign you, backstab, they could verbally abuse you, tell lies about you. And assuming those people are believers, well, you know, it's possible that we may end up really, really disliking those people. And dislike is just the, the beginnings of, of hatred. It's just stage one. If they are believers, if you've been unfortunate enough to suffer at the hands of another believer at all in your Christian life, then you, you need to just rethink. Think about this. That person's good enough for God. Is he therefore not good enough for you? 
Do you have higher standards than God? Are you more wise than God? No one would dare say that, surely. So if this person's good enough for God, it should be good enough for us. So this, this opposite, this hatred that we've spoken of, verse 15 says something quite shocking, that whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. No murderer can have eternal life. Murder. Listen to this, what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And you know that elsewhere Jesus says that if a man lusts after a woman or the other way around, in his heart he's committed adultery already. So in a way, the, the fact that the fact that the, the action, the acting out of that sin hasn't taken place is almost a, a detail. Jesus is saying, it's too late. The crime's already been committed in your heart. You're an adulterer or you're a murderer. And this, this uh, hatred uh, leading to desires for people to die is, is all over the, the scriptures. And so it, it seems to be very natural progression to go from hatred to, to, to murder. I mean, actual murder in many cases. I mean, we've got, we've got Esau and Jacob. Esau hated Jacob that much that he said, as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill him. We have Herod's wife, Rhodius. She hated John the Baptist so much. She said, I want him dead, I want him dead, but the people like him so much, I wouldn't get away with it. Well, she got her way. And the Jews, the Jews hated the Apostle Paul so much that a gang of them actually covenanted together that they would not eat or drink water or anything until they had killed Paul. These are, these are all examples of the unrighteous wanting to kill people because of their righteousness. They hate purity. They hate holiness. They hate God. So far be it from us that we should align ourselves with those wicked people by hating our brother. We have in verse 16 something quite remarkable. It tells us how we can see God's love demonstrated to us. Verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us, so yes, he was killed by wicked men. Yes, they were guilty of his murder. But in another sense, we should remember that Jesus was willing. Jesus, in fact, ordained the whole thing. He laid down his life for us. Jesus Christ, he hung on a cross, this Son of God, and was not only tortured to the point of death by the people, but perhaps, well, more importantly, he was inwardly tortured by his own Father. And dare I say that the Holy Spirit was a party to this too. So here was God torturing God, 
And let it not escape our notice this morning. Verse 16, it does say, He laid down his life for us, referring to God. Now, someone might argue that that is unusual language for the Scriptures, that the Scriptures um, normally say that Jesus Christ died. And so we might argue that, well, maybe a few verses back there was mention of Jesus, and so it means that God loves us because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. But if you scan the verses before that, you can go back quite a few verses, and Jesus is not mentioned, and it seems obvious to me that this verse means what it at first looks like. God laid down his life for us. And if that's the right understanding, it just it can be added to the list of all those verses that show Jesus' divine nature. It says here in John 15, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus died on that cross under immense pressure and torment of soul. And yet I believe he still had room in his thoughts for his friends who he was dying for. And I don't mean friends in general. I mean you, his friends in particular. He laid down his life for his friends. He did not lay down his life for those who would forever be his enemies. The next part of that verse, it continues to say that because God in Christ laid down his life for his friends, so we should lay down our lives for our friends, for the brethren. So, we know it doesn't mean, you know, try to get ourselves killed or anything like that. What's it mean? Laying down our lives. Well, what do these wicked, unrighteous people think? What do they, what do they think of the people they hate? They want them gone. That's the first thing. They want them, they just want them gone. They have murder in their hearts, the scriptures say. Actual murder. Really, they... They want to sacrifice the person they hate. They want to sacrifice them for their own benefit. They want them gone to benefit themselves. And they, in effect, they kill them. They inwardly kill that person. What about us? What does, what does love for the brethren look like? We don't want them gone. We want them to stay. We don't want the brethren to be gone. We want them to stay with us. We want to fellowship with them. We want to fellowship with them in preparation for that eternal fellowship in glory. We don't have murder in our hearts. We have the love of Christ in our hearts instead. We don't want to sacrifice the brethren for our benefit. We want to somehow sacrifice ourselves for their benefit. We don't kill them. We don't kill them inwardly. We, we kill ourselves. We kill ourselves for them. 
And what does this mean, us as dying? Well, you could say that as far as the law of God is concerned, all God's elect have been put to death as they are in Christ. Then there's a more literal understanding, for example, when the Apostle Paul spoke to the church, he said, consider Timothy. See how he's, he's, he's almost worked himself into the grave for this cause of the gospel. But for us, perhaps, it's a more, it's a more, it's a more daily practice that this means. Something, a daily practice. So how, how is it? How can we sacrifice ourselves for others? Well, well we can be, we can be uh, prayerful for people. We can be prayerful for the brethren. Sure, we can pray that God will uh, increase their faith, that they will be more zealous in his work. We could, as I alluded to earlier, we could take on their burdens. We can, we can try to feel when they suffer and somehow share in their suffering. We should really, in a way, we should, in all humility, we should try to outdo the brethren in our love and our charity. We should try to outdo others. But this love for the brethren um, is not always restricted to those sorts of um, concepts. There's material ways we can help the brethren. Very real, concrete ways we can help the brethren too. That is, if you're in a position to help someone practically, then you should do it. It says here in James, you, you'll recall this, it says, if a brother or sister be naked, that, that, that is, you know, insufficient clothing, destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? I mean, it's not just good wishes that God is looking for here. He doesn't want you to just, you know, say, oh, the, the Lord bless you. And I'll say this as well. Prayer, in these cases, is not good enough. Prayer alone does not impress God. So even that very righteous practice of going to God, approaching His throne, and pleading on behalf of another brother is not good enough if in fact you are the answer to that brother's prayers that brother is that brother has, is short of money and has no food and he's praying for an answer to that and you've got cupboards full of tins of food and you say to God Lord I'm blessed with all this food and he has none Lord will you help him will you send him some food What's God going to make of that? He wants you to go in the cupboard, fill the plastic bag, and take the food to him. And pray. And pray for him. So friends, we're to be generous. Those, those days of people starving to death and begging, you know, uh, begging on the streets for, for, you know, to survive for food, they've mostly gone. Certainly in our country anyway. We have a thankful for the, the, this uh, system that we have that is able to 
support people and, and keep them fed. That, that sort of welfare system seems to work. So we're in a different situation. We're friends. Look out, look out for opportunities. Look out for people who are in need in any way. And be generous. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your money. Because remember, the time that you have and the money that you have was not given by God for you to go and just do with it whatever you feel like. God gives you your time and your money to dispense. To dispense. You may have to dispense it by feeding yourself and your family. But it's not only for that. These are uh, three verses, 19, 20, and 21, might seem a bit obscure. About assuring our hearts before God, and our heart condemning us, and so on. Well, what does it mean? It means that, having been told your obligations to love the brethren, if you don't do it, if you don't love the brethren, your hearts are affected. And if your heart is affected, you cannot approach God in prayer with a clear conscience. And it's worse than that because we have to realise that God sees the whole picture. God knows inside and out what you fail to do. However, it says, however, if we obey God in all things, including loving the brethren, if we do that, we will have a clear conscience. And then it says, he will answer our prayers. He will answer our prayers. It's a condition of prayer. It's one of the conditions of prayer. What do we want today? What we want from the Lord today is that he would give us grace. Grace to obey him, love the brethren, and then go and pray in faith and just stand back and watch God just give and give and give according to his abundant mercy. Let's pray, brothers and sisters.